0: You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past Pictures of the Future, Episode 9 with Daniel Pell. Good evening and welcome to our series Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. We are excited and thrilled to continue our journey in the book of Revelation tonight. And we have actually come to Revelation chapter 4. And so that's where we're going to pick up our study tonight. We looked in our last presentation at the message of Jesus to the seven churches, the seven churches that existed in the days of John, but that also uh, provided a panoramic picture of the Christian, throughout, Christian history throughout the ages. It was very fascinating to go on that journey together. And tonight we um, will continue in chapter 4. And our topic is titled Revelations Countdown, Revelations Countdown. Let us have a word of prayer and then we'll get right into our study. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have brought us together again. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. And I pray that you will speak to our hearts as we seek to understand the teachings and the truths that have been given to us in the book of Revelation. We pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us. For this we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Revelation, really everything meets and ends. When you look at the scriptures as a whole, it's like everything is coming together and climaxing in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we're going to study several passages uh, in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see that again tonight as we move into chapters 4 and 5 and 6 in the book of Revelation. We're going to see clearly that some stories of the past are going to give us significant understanding of the prophecies that we will be studying. And so we see the story of Revelation as a beautiful picture of what Christ now is doing and what he is going to do because of what he has already done. Now, as we turn to Revelation chapter 4, we're just going to begin in verse 1. And what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is this beautiful picture of Christ as ruler, as Christ as the one that has been victorious, as uh, he looks back upon what he has achieved and accomplished here on earth. Take notice of this beautiful picture. picture that is presented to us here in Revelation chapter 4, and I'm just going to begin reading in verse 1. Some of the scriptures will be on the screen, others I have um, not put everything on the screen, so some of the verses we'll be reading from our Bibles as well, but um, you can follow along here if you would like on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bibles. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, the Bible says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper, and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Comprehend for a moment. Try to uh, imagine the scene that John beheld in this vision. He looks and he sees a door that is opened. Can you imagine having just a picture of heaven itself? John looked into the heavenly throne room. What did he see there in the heavenly throne room? Well, according to the text, It was probably hard for him to describe exactly what he saw, but as he does his best to put this into words, and as the Holy Spirit is guiding him as he is writing, he describes it as the colors of jasper, sardius stone, a rainbow that is seen around the throne. Not only is there one throne where God himself is sitting on that throne, but he also sees 24 other thrones where 24 elders are sitting. Quite an impressive scene that John beholds there in the heavenly throne room. We continue in chapter 5, and I want you to take notice of what happens. Um, in the, uh, as John beholds this throne room in heaven. The rest of chapter 4 you can you can read as well. Um, it, it, it talks about these 24 elders that are worshipping uh, the Father, that are worshipping uh, God, and they fall to their faces and they cry, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. There's this grand worship scene that you read about in chapter 4. As you then move into chapter 5, something significant takes place. And in verse 1, the Bible says... John writing here, and he says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is of the Heavenly Father sitting on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John beholds the Father sitting on the throne, and in his hand is a scroll, and that scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now we're going to um, study tonight these seals and this book and what it really represents. And it is indeed a fascinating prophecy to be able to look into and also connect with some stories from the Old Testament as we endeavor to understand what this scroll represents and what these seals upon the scroll represent as well. Now, let us go to the next couple of verses here in Revelation chapter 5 because what happens with that scroll? Well, the Bible says, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So John, first he sees the heavenly throne room and it's beautiful. It's glorious. It's, he can hardly find words to describe it. Then he sees the 24 elders and God himself sitting on the throne. He sees in the hand of the Father a scroll, and that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And then an angel appears, and the angel proclaims with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And John is now really in suspense. He is excited. He is thrilled. Is someone going to be found that will be able to open that scroll? Well, let's continue to read here in Revelation chapter 5. The question, of course, now is who is worthy to open the book? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Verse 4, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 4. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. These are the words of John the prophet. He beheld the scroll, but then he began weeping because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. It was such an important moment for John that he is emotionally touched by the fact that no one can open that book. There must be something significant about that book. There must be something very important about that scroll, since it even touched John to the point of tears. Now, let's continue here, because we want to find out what that scroll represents. And in order to find out what that scroll represents, because it must be something very important, if not even an angel, well, a strong angel uh, couldn't, couldn't even open it, and then no one was found to open it. We go back to the Old Testament and we're going to look at three particular stories in the Old Testament that I believe are going to shed light upon the meaning of the scroll. They're going to shed light upon what this actually this scene represents. Because many times when you read the scriptures, and particularly when you read the book of Revelation, you sometimes have to put yourself in the place of a Jew. Now, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish tradition, there were certain scenes that were very familiar for a Jew, and yet they're very different or very uncommon uh, for you and for me, especially living in the day and age in which we live. If I would, see, if I would come into a room and I would see 24 elders or 24 elderly, people sitting on thrones, and I would see a book that was sealed with seven seals, I would absolutely have no clue or no idea what that book would be about. And I think that many of us, many of you can say the same. So we have to now take a step, a step back, place ourselves a little bit into the Jewish world, into the Jewish culture, go back to the stories of the past, and see if we can then grasp a little bit more what is spoken of here in the book of Revelation. Revelation. And so we go to Jeremiah chapter 32, and this is going to be our first story. As I said, we're going to go to the three stories that I believe will help us to understand this picture a little better. Jeremiah chapter 32, the prophet Jeremiah lived at the same time as the prophet Daniel. Now, we have studied the book of Daniel, and Daniel was the prophet that was taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah lived uh, in Jerusalem and in Judah, and he was the prophet that prophesied the coming of the king of the north and the invasion of the king of the north. Now, the people really didn't like Jeremiah the prophet, and so what they did is they took Jeremiah the prophet and they cast him into prison. And even while he was in prison, Babylon came and the prediction of his prophecies came to pass. And so while Jeremiah's prison Babylon has surrounded the city of Jerusalem and that's where we pick up the story here in Jeremiah chapter 32 beginning in verse 1 and the Bible says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah king of Judah which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar for then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison which was in the king of Judah's house That's quite something to shut up the prison, to shut up the prophet when his predictions are coming to pass in before their very eyes. And yet this was the this was the uh, how far the people had come in apostasy at that time. Now, the next scene is the significant scene that I want you to take note of um, in connection with our prophecy and revelation with the book, the sealed book and um, the significance of the elders and the scene that we behold here. Jeremiah is in prison, and listen to what it says. Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 6. And I'm going to read from verse 6 to verse 12. And Jeremiah said... "...the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please, buy my field uh, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours." And the redemption yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle who was an Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. Now I just want to pause there for a moment before I continue to read. It was about the worst time possible to purchase land. Because if you think about it, all the land owned was owned now by Babylon. Babylon had invaded. Babylon had surrounded Jerusalem. And now the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah that Jeremiah is to purchase the land from his cousin. And just as the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, his cousin appears there in the court of the prison house. And he comes there and he wants to sell the land. Now, of course, there's some symbolic meaning in all of this, and we're going to find out in just a moment what that symbolic meaning is. But let's continue to read as we look at how this transaction takes place as he purchases the land from his cousin. It says, And I signed the deed and did what? Sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law, Jewish law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So as, um, jeremiah purchases the land from his cousin it has to happen according to the custom of the jews according to the law of the jews and so the scene is a very interesting one there are witnesses and those witnesses are beholding what is taking place they are there to witness this uh, transaction this purchase the deeds are written in a book or on a scroll and that scroll is then sealed now, that, that that is very familiar language when you look at what we just read in Revelation chapters 4, and particularly in chapter, five. in chapter 5. In chapters 4 and 5, we read about witnesses, 24 of them, 24 witnesses. We read about a scroll, and that scroll is sealed. Now, the question here in the story of Jeremiah, of course, is why did Jeremiah at such a time purchase land from his cousin because it was the worst time to buy land. Babylon had just invaded Jerusalem, uh, just invaded Judah and had besieged Jerusalem. Well, in the very same chapter, Jeremiah chapter 32, you go to the last verses there and listen to what it says. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 15. For thus says the Lord, and this is the message of Jeremiah that he received from the Lord. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So though Jeremiah had given the prophecy that the people of God would be taken into captivity by the king of the north, by Babylon, and as we have already learned in our studies on the book of Daniel, we we looked at that prophecy of Jeremiah where he predicted that they would go into captivity for a period of 70 years, which accurately happened, Uh, though he gave the prophecy that they would go into captivity, God was so merciful that he already gave the promise at the time of the captivity, at the time that they were about to be taken away, that they one day would come back and again purchase, or again um, possess the land and purchase lands and build houses and vineyards. Isn't God good? God in his mercy was giving the promise that they would return. But this purchase of land was a very significant one because what Jeremiah did is he bought the land from his cousin uh, and, and by doing so, he is giving a message, which is really a message from God, that land again will be purchased after the captivity. Now, after the captivity, if they would come back, they would be able to unseal that book that had been sealed and as they would open up that scroll, it would give the account of the land that Jeremiah possessed, that he had bought. And so it was in the Jewish culture that you would purchase a land and it would be recorded, it would be written down and then it would be sealed and this would all be done in the eyes or before the witnesses, before the eyes of the witnesses. Very interesting scene. Now thinking back about what we have learned in Revelation or what we have seen in Revelation, is there... Is there a land that has been bought? Is there um, a place that has been secured? Think about it. When Jesus came to this world, he paid a very high price to redeem this world back. It was a very high price that he paid with his own blood. You see when sin entered into this world when when our uh, when, when our parents when Adam and Eve decided to eat of the forbidden fruit, this world, this land, this planet was hijacked by the devil himself, and he claimed it as his, but Jesus Christ. He came and He paid the price to redeem this planet back. He poured out His blood and that has been written in a book and it is sealed with seven seals. It is secure. It is His. It belongs to Him. Now, what is very fascinating about this is that you will take, if you took notice there in the story, when the cousin of Jeremiah came to Jeremiah in the prison, he said something significant. He said, the right to redeem the land, the right to purchase the land is yours. Now, what does that mean? What that meant is in Jewish culture, in the Jewish tradition, you couldn't just sell your land to whoever you wanted. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to sell a land, you would first have to go to your kinsman or your family, your your relatives. If they did not want to purchase that land, then you could go to someone else. But you had to go to the person that first had the right to purchase that land. So the close kinsman, the close relative has the first right to purchase the land. Now think about this, Jesus condescended from heaven, became a man, and he became one of us so he could have the right to purchase this world when he died on Calvary so it could be written in a book and sealed with seven seals. And we are waiting now for those seals to be unsealed so that one day, the scroll can be opened, which is, I believe, really the book of life, and the record will be there, who will purchase, who will possess the land? Because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our names are recorded in that book. Our names are recorded in that, um, doc. It, it, we could say in that scroll, in that document of the purchase of Christ. Now, let's go a little bit further to another story that I believe will shed a little bit more light on this as well. We turn to the story of Ruth, and some of you might be familiar with this story. Um, A couple by the name of Elimelech and Naomi, they had two sons, and they were a Jewish family, and they went to live in Moab, which was a neighboring country of Israel, because of a famine that arose in Israel. And they lived there for many years, and they had two sons, and both their sons ended up marrying uh, Moabites. And those Moabite women were Ruth, and the other was Orpah. Now, um, what happened is, over the course of the years, Elimelech and his two sons that had married these Moabite ladies, um, they died. And so, Naomi decides that she's going to go back to her country. She's going to go back to Israel. And one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, decides that she's going to join uh, Naomi to go back to Israel. And so, they go back together, and uh, shortly after that... Um, Ruth starts working for Boaz, which was a relative of Naomi. We read there in uh, Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Boaz had many fields, and uh, you read the story there, and Ruth, she starts laboring, she starts working on those fields. Now, in the meanwhile, Naomi is really praying because she wants Ruth to end up together with Boaz, that they can uh, marry. And and in God's providence, this also happens. But when you look at how how this story unfolds, it's very fascinating, also in the light of, um, of these Jewish customs and laws that, again, shed light. Light on the story that we read about in Revelation. I want you to take notice, and we don't really have time to go into the entire story of Ruth, but uh, ultimately uh, Boaz and Ruth, they, they get together. You can, you can read the book. It's, it's a fascinating story. They get together, and um, Boaz is now going to secure uh, Ruth as his wife, and take notice how that story unfolds itself, and we, go, we turn to chapter 4 and verse 1 because um, Ruth... As, 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 as the coming, becoming bride or the coming bride of Boaz is connected also again with a land. Take notice of what it says here. Now Boaz went to the gate and sat down there and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, and sit down here. So he came aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and, sits, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Take notice of the scene here. You have the elders that are sitting there. Boaz is there. And Boaz is together with a close relative. And now take notice of why he is with this person. It says, Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now remember, when you sell a land, it has to first go to relatives. Relatives. Then I thought to inform you saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of the people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. So there is someone that is closer to Elimelech that has the first right to purchase the land. And if he doesn't want to purchase it, then Boaz is the next person that has the right to to, to purchase the land. Now take notice what it says. Uh, Boaz continues to speak to this relative. He says, but if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And and he said, I will redeem it. So the relative that was closer to Elimelech that had the first right to purchase the land says, I'll purchase the land. But there was something that came together with the land. Take notice of the next verse. Then Boaz said, "On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabites, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance." And the close relative said, "I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right to redeem for the, for the, uh, sorry. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it." So, what happens here is that Boaz uh, is the next in line, and because the closer relative understood that with the land came a bride, he said, "Well, Well, you know, I can't do that. I can't do that. And so then Boaz steps in and he says, I will purchase the land, and he becomes the husband of Ruth. Ruth marries Boaz. Now, this is Incredible typology here because in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we have the picture that the church of God, the movement of God, the people of God are the bride of Jesus Christ. And so uh, Boaz is a type of Christ and Ruth is a type of the church or the people of God. Now, when Jesus came to this earth and died for our sins and poured out His blood on our behalf, not only did He purchase this world, not only did He purchase this land, but with the land came a a bride. Came a bride. And this record of both the land and the bride is recorded in that scroll in Revelation. And in order for that scroll to be read... The seals have to come off first, and we're going to see in just a moment what those seals represent, and we'll see how far we are in this process of opening this scroll, opening this book. But there's one more story I want to go to before we move back to Revelation. This is a story found in the book of Leviticus, and we're going to all these Jewish customs and Jewish traditions and laws because it's very important to put put ourselves in this position so that we understand the scene in Revelation Uh, That's why we need the Old Testament in order to understand the book of Revelation. In Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 2, the Bible says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. "...but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard." Now, this was an important principle that was given to Israel, that they were to work the land for six years, but then they were to rest the land on the seventh year. The principle is very simple. It says in verse 8, "...and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself." Seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. And so there was not only uh, were they to every seventh year rest the land, but this was a sequence that was to continue seven times. Seven times seven, 49 years. Now what happened on the 50th year then? The 50th year was known as the year of Jubilee. Now listen to what it says in verse 9 and 10. It says, then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year. So the 50th year was to be consecrated. Listen to what it says and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you and each of you shall return to his possession and each of you shall return to his Family. Now, the principle is very simple. The principle is this that even though you would sell your land, you would know that your land was secured for you and you could receive it back in the year of Jubilee. In verse 13, it says, In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. Now if there was a poor family that really needed some funds, that really needed some money, they could sell their land and still have the secure uh, awareness or the secure um, uh, security that they would receive that land back in the year of Jubilee. And so when you would sell your land, for example, just after this year of Jubilee, you could sell it to a large amount of money. But if you would sell your land, let's say, two or three years before the year of Jubilee was coming, of course, you would sell it to, uh, it would not be worth a lot, because in the year of Jubilee was the year that land would be returned to its rightful owner. Now, how does this connect with our story? My friends, when Jesus Christ comes back in the clouds of heaven, when Jesus Christ comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we are then we have then come to what we could call the antitypical day or or, or, or moment of Jubilee year of Jubilee. Because what, uh, what 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 would what will go on on the year of Jubilee? The land will be given back to its rightful owner. Who is the rightful owner of this world? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the rightful owner of this world. This world has been lost. We could almost say has been hijacked by, by Satan himself. Satan claims this world is his. And Jesus has purchased it back on Calvary. It has been recorded in a book sealed with seven seals and when that last seventh seal is peeled off then the scroll will be opened the book will be opened and everyone in the universe will know for surety that this world belongs to Jesus Christ it will be a year of jubilee it will be a year of deliverance it will be the moment that Christ returns with power and great glory So with these three stories in mind, the story of Jeremiah, the story of Ruth, and the story of the year of Jubilee, I think we can now understand a little bit better what is going on here in Revelation. Back to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? "...and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it, so I wept much." because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. When I read this text for the first time, I thought to myself, why is is John weeping about not being able to look into that scroll? And I thought to myself, well, it must have something to do with that scroll revealing the future. And John is sad because now he doesn't know about the future. But it really didn't really satisfy uh, that answer, that question totally, because there must be something more to it. You see, John was very familiar with that scene. He had seen it many times as he walked on the streets of Jerusalem. I'm sure that John would sometime on the street corner, he would see the witnesses. He would see the purchase between uh, regarding a property. He would see someone sign and seal the document. He knew this scene so well. He had seen it many times. Maybe he had been engaged in, in it himself. And now when he sees this heavenly throne, he sees the witnesses, he sees the book, he sees the book sealed with seven seals, and no one can open it. John knows very well, if no one can open that scroll, if no one can open that book, no one will know who inherits this earth. No one will know who possesses this earth. And so the scene was very real for John, and he weeps when no one was found to open the book. But of course, there was someone that was found to open the book. Listen to the next verses, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. Who is Abel? It's Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ can be, can be portrayed. Jesus Christ can be described in many, many different ways. There are uh, numerous names for Jesus Christ in Scripture, numerous ways to describe him. Listen to how Jesus is described here. Listen to how Jesus is introduced here. He is introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as the root of David. In other words, one of us the root of david he came as a man why he had to become a man because then he was a kinsman then he became our elderly brother he became a relative why so that he could purchase the land because that is what had to happen so we see some very very significant language here that is incredibly important for us to grasp this scene in the book of revelation now, of course, if we would have a book, let's say this is the book, and it is sealed, just imagine here, with seven seals, seven seals. Now, if I, if I peel back one seal, am I able to open the book? No. If I peel back two, am I able to open the book? No. How many seals have to be removed until I can open the book? All seven, right? All seven must be re- re- removed before I can open the book. Now, when the seventh seal is removed and the book is opened, that is what we could call the year of Jubilee, right? When the rightful owner receives back the land. That would be the event of Christ's second coming. The ultimate deliverance and the uh, the possession of the land is now Jesus. Is, it's Christ and none other. Now, then what we can expect is that as we look at the book of Revelation and chapter 6, and you can turn with me uh, to Revelation chapter 6, the chapter that now follows is a chapter in which the seals are systematically, one by one, removed. And what we can expect is that we're getting closer and closer and closer to the ultimate deliverance. We're getting closer and closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see in the seven seals is that they are events from the days of John, when he beheld the book, until the final deliverance when Jesus Christ comes back and the ultimate um, year of Jubilee has arrived. So let us take a look at these events because they are significant indeed. Uh, Before we go there, I just want to read this verse as well. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, um, because... First, Jesus was seen, or, or Jesus was pronounced as the, um, uh, the root of David, the uh, lion from the tribe of Judah. And then in the next verse, verse 6, it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne uh, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. It says the lamb had been slain. That's significant because Jesus had died. And because Jesus died, he was worthy to open the book. He was not worthy if he had not given his life to purchase the, this world. So he has, he's the only one that is worthy to open that book. None other in heaven and earth could open that book. Why? Because he is the lamb that had been slain. And so we turn our attention to the seals themselves. And let's look at the first, uh, the first seal in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1 revelation chapter 6 and verse 1 the bible says now i saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and i heard one of the four living creatures saying with a, loud, a voice like thunder come and see and i looked and behold a white horse and to him he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer So when the first seal is opened, the scene that appears before the eyes of John is a white horse and, and a man that is riding on that horse. And this man that is riding on the horse, he has this kingly appearance. He has this appearance of a soldier, of a warrior, and he's going forth conquering and to conquer. Now... This scene is a very interesting one, because when you go back, and you might remember that we studied, well, I mean, it was our last presentation, we studied the seven churches. In the seven churches of Revelation, you also have a similar sequence from the days of John until the second coming of Jesus Christ, or just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You have seven churches giving the sequence of events from the days of John to our days today. Now, the seven seals really correspond in many ways to the seven churches as it gives us another panoramic view of the events throughout the centuries. Now, when you look at the first seal, it is really a picture of the apostolic church that went forth conquering in the name of the gospel. There was no, you couldn't stop them. They went into the then known world and they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ with great power. They went forth conquering and to conquer. An incredible picture of the early church movement of God. Now, take notice of the next seal. The first seal is peeled back, and so we come to the second one, which is verse 3 and 4 in Revelation chapter 6. Verse 3 and 4, and it says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see another horse, fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth that the people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword so in the first seal we have a conquering person on a horse and in the second seal we have uh, another person on a horse but this person is bringing war this person is bringing conflict there is peace that is peace is taken from the earth it is a time of persecution. Now, again, you correspond this with what we learned throughout the seven churches. And we come to uh, the second century and particularly uh, we read and we learn about a time of great persecution under the power of pagan Rome. So first there is a conquering time of the gospel. Then the gospel is under much pressure by the persecuting powers of pagan Rome but it didn't end there. Listen to the third seal as it is opened up. And again, these are just seals that are removed, bringing us closer and closer and closer to the end of time. The third seal is described in verse five and six of Revelation chapter six. And listen to what it says. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Then, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. So we have a white horse and then we have a red horse. And now in the third seal, we have a black horse. We go from a time of the conquering gospel to a time of the persecuted gospel. And now we come to the black horse, which was really a time of the compromised gospel. It was a time in which Constantine, as we have discussed earlier, as we have looked at earlier, merged the paganistic world with the Christian world. It was a time in which um, truth, the truth of God was trampled on and it was replaced for the traditions of man. Now, I, I think the the, the um, description of the third seal is, very, is a very interesting one. It says in verse 6, a quart of a wheat... For a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now a denarius in the days of John was about a day's wage, and you look at the amount that a a denarius uh, that they got for a denarius at that time, and it was a quart of a wheat. That's a very small amount. And then it says after that, um, um, three quarts of barley. Now, that's also a very small amount. So, so what we see here is that food was very, very expensive. Now, the barley and the wheat are really, in many ways, a symbol of God's word that was very, very precious in those days. As a matter of fact, it could hardly be found because um, in, those, in, in, in the days of compromise and in the days of... Um, the rising up of, of, of the papal church, the scriptures were very scarcely um, available for the common people. And so the word of God becomes so precious. It becomes so valuable. There was like a famine in the land, a spiritual hunger, a spiritual famine in these days of compromise. But let's continue and look at the next seal, the fourth seal, that we read about in verse 7 and 8. Look at this symbolic, figurative language that speaks, though, very significant to the time periods that we're dealing with here. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, "'Come and see.' So I looked, and behold, a pale horse." and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to him over the fourth over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword with hunger with death and by the beasts of the earth so as we come to the fourth seal we have a pale horse and really the description is 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 incredible it's it's death and this being, this horse, this, the being on this horse is given power to bring great, great persecution. And the Bible says that a fourth of the earth was killed with sword, hunger and death and the beasts of the earth. Great, great persecution breaks out. Now, we know that the consequences of a compromising church is ultimately a persecuting church. Because now those that stand for truth, those that cling to the teachings of God's word, become the object of great hatred. Because they, by their own lives, are denouncing the sins of this great grand organization that has received the acceptance of the world. And so if you would be looking for a church in those days, the church of Rome was the church that ruled. The church of Rome was the church that had all the prestige and the power and the titles. And yet it was not where God's spirit dwelt because God's spirit was dwelling in those that kept to the word of God, that clinged to the teachings of Scripture. And now there was a great period of darkness, a great period of death, a pale horse, and there were many, many people that lost their lives during the dark ages, during that period that we have studied previously of the 1260 years that are mentioned several times in Bible prophecy reaching from 538 to 1798, the period of great darkness. Let's look at the next seal as we continue to unfold the events throughout the ages, which really correspond in many ways to the seven churches that we find in Revelation 2 and 3. And the next seal is the fifth, and we read about that in verse 9 to 11. The Bible says when he opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held and they cried with a loud voice saying how long O Lord holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then the white robe was given to them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, the fifth seal is an important one because it is the cry of the martyrs, and the cry is how long? How long until the deliverance? How long will this continue? A question that is a question that is coming from the hearts and from, and from those that are in this darkness, that are in this period uh, in which it seems that there is no end. There was a long period of papal supremacy and oppression. And yet there came an end to that time period, as we have already learned uh, from various other uh, uh, places, that in 1798, indeed, the, the uh, unity between church and state, between Rome and the kings of Europe, this was abolished, and again there was liberty, and again the, t- the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of prophecy became very prominent shortly after that. And this is also revealed in the very next seal, in the sixth seal. And we come now towards, we're coming closer and closer now to the very days in which we're living. We're coming closer and closer to the moment that the book can actually be opened. Now, listen to the sixth seal. And this is Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 to 17. The rest of the verses remaining in this chapter. It says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receding as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men and the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Quite a number of events that transpire here as the sixth seal is peeled, off now you will notice that as the as the sixth seal begins to be peeled off the first events that we read about there in verse 12 is a great great earthquake now we have to look at the significance of the storyline here of the line of events that we're looking at and of course we just found out that the fifth seal was coming to the moment where the where the martyrs were, were crying out how long so we're still in the Dark Ages, and yet it's coming towards the end of the Dark Ages. And then as we move into the sixth seal, a great earthquake takes place. Now, as we come to the close of the Dark Ages, towards the close of the Dark Ages, was there any great significant earthquake that happened sometime in the 1700s where we would then have to expect it? And the answer is yes. Yes. On the 1st of of November, 1755, is known, um, and and you can look it up, it's it's very interesting to read the history of what happened in Lisbon, in Portugal. There was a huge, great, grand earthquake, and thousands lost their lives. It was a huge, big earthquake, one of the biggest earthquakes that had ever happened till that time. And... Uh, This earthquake is really fitting in, in, in the time sequence that we're looking at here in Revelation. Now, that's not the only thing that happened, because after the earthquake is described, the next event that is described in verse 12 is that the sun became black and the moon became like blood. And it was not... Very long after that, in the year 1780, on the May the 19th of 1780, that in the United States, where, by the way, many of the Bible prophecy students were, because if you look at the... uh, the, the, the history of what took place. Europe was so, there was so many, so much oppression in Europe that many of those that were seeking for freedom, they went to the United States and it was there where they really started studying the word of God in greater depth, de- depth and they started preaching the books of Daniel and Revelation and in their preaching, they were seeing the fulfillment of prophecy even before their very eyes. In also this event described here in Revelation chapter six, There was a dark day on May the 19th of 1780, and the sun became black. And it was not just some um, naturally explainable event. It was not just some eclipse, sun eclipse, Um, but it was... Not expected at all. Suddenly there was a dark day and at the very same time the moon appeared as blood. For many Bible students that was a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now what was still left, they had seen the, or the earthquake, they had heard about the earthquake, they now experienced the darkening day and the sun as blood. And in the year 1833, on November the 13th of 1833, is the, is the day that is known for the falling of the stars. And in the very same place here in the United States, in many parts of the, of of the United States, um, they would see, they could, they could witness the falling of the stars. And it was such an event that many believed it had, that the end had come. They believed that the end had come. And yet Bible students again were reminded of the scriptures and the prophecies that showed that they were now very near to the close of time. And yet the sixth seal, if we would have to identify ourselves in this grand story, in this grand panoramic picture here, of course these are past events, and yet Jesus has not yet come, and so we could almost say that we find ourselves between verse 13 and 14, because according to verse 14, the Bible says, then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place... And the kings of the earth, the great and mighty men, the commanders, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. This is describing the second coming of Jesus. And then the question is asked: Who is able to stand? The great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Now we have not. Yes, we have not yet witnessed the sky receding as a scroll. Yet we have witnessed these other events in this uh, panoramic picture of the seals. And so we find ourselves right there between verse 13 and 14. Now, of course, there are a lot of prophetic events that fit between those verses. There are entire chapters of the book of Revelation that still will be fulfilled between these years. But what scripture often does is it gives us a big picture and then it shows other events that come in. And so clearly in this bigger picture, we are right there in the sixth seal. And when Jesus returns, the sixth seal will be completely removed and the question will be asked, who shall be able to stand? Now there's still one seal left then, the seventh seal. Now catch the importance here of what is going on. The question is asked in verse 17, which is the last verse of Revelation chapter 6, The great day of his wrath has come. Who was able to stand? And the answer is given in the very next chapter. And what I often say when I teach the Bible and when I teach the book of Revelation, I will often remind my students that when you read the book of Revelation, don't always uh, consider the chapter divisions. Because when John wrote the book of Revelation, he didn't stop in the end of chapter 6 and say, okay, I'm going to sleep now and I'll continue chapter 7 tomorrow morning. When he wrote it, it was not written with the chapter division. And so sometimes, you know, we get caught up in theming or or putting a theme to the chapter and not seeing the complete picture. The story continues in chapter 7 because chapter 7 is basically an answer to the question in chapter 6, the last verse. The last verse, the question is asked, Who shall be able to stand? That's the great big question. This is probably the most important question in the book of Revelation. The question is, Who shall be able to stand? The answer, Revelation chapter 7, let's continue to read here. Revelation chapter 7, it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. It's like God is keeping things in check so that the final movements of earth's history can take place. Verse 2, then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So there's going to be a sealing of the final generation The final generation that are God's children, God's followers, the commandment-keeping people of God empowered by Him will be sealed upon their foreheads. These will be those that will be able to stand when Jesus comes. These will be those that will be translated into heaven when He comes. It goes on to describe them in chapter 7, and if you read the entire chapter, you read about the sealing of the 144,000. The 144,000 is the picture of the final generation that will follow Jesus wherever He goes. They will be sealed. They will be part of this final sealing. This is the spiritual Israel that God is forming in the end of time. It also talks about the great multitude in the second part of chapter 7, which will be those that will be resurrected and will be part of this great big number that will stand in the presence of God. And both the 144,000, the living when Jesus comes, and the great multitude that will be resurrected when Jesus comes, together they will have their names written in the book of life because they have put their trust in Jesus and their names are in the book of life. They possess the land with Christ. Now let's look at the very last seal because the seventh seal is not described in chapter 6. Neither is it described in chapter 7, but it appears in chapter 8 and verse 1. Let's go there. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Right after we have, and it really makes sense because, you know, if we don't think so much about chapter divisions, we have the question in chapter 6, who shall be able to stand? We have the answer in Revelation chapter 7, and then we come to the final seal in verse 1 of chapter 8, and it says, when he opened the seventh seal, this is the final one, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Well, we can ask ourselves the question, why would there be silence in heaven? And I can only think of one reason, because all of heaven has come to take us home. All of heaven is emptied. Who would want to stay back? Can you imagine being an angel of God? And Jesus says, okay, we're going to go get them. And the angels have been looking on for centuries. Many of them have been guiding us in the most difficult moments of our lives. They, of course, want to be there. There's not going to be one angel that will say, I'll stay back. I'll take care of the heavens. No, they will all go. Heaven will be empty. There will be silence in heaven. Why? Because the entire universe, the the, the the throne of God and the entire angelic host will now be on their way to this planet to redeem us because Christ has paid the price. And when Jesus appears in the sky as King of kings and Lord of lords, the seventh seal will be removed. There is silence in heaven. And yet on earth there is also a silence because there is this awe and wonder as to what is going to happen next. And the seventh seal is removed. The book is opened. And now it is revealed that Jesus is the rightful owner and possessor of this land. And with this land comes a bride. And that bride is the 144,000. That bride is now the resurrected host that have put their faith, the great multitude that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And you and I can be part of that number. Amen. You and I can put our faith in Jesus Christ tonight. And you can have your name written in that book. And these seals are being removed, and they have been removed, and we are living in the very close of Earth's history. Soon the sixth seal will be further removed, and Christ will appear. And then the seventh seal will be removed. And it is my prayer that our names will be in that book. It's my prayer that we will be possessors of the land that Christ has purchased for us. And we can make that decision tonight by putting our faith and trust in Him. Let's do that, and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for the great hope that you give to us in your word. We want to thank you for the confidence that we can have in you, that we can follow you wherever you lead us. Lord, thank you for your prophetic word. Thank you for the knowledge that we can obtain from the book of Revelation. And Lord, I pray that as we prepare for your coming, that you will fill our hearts with great joy and that you will place within us this Um, longing after Yourself that we will be able to be sealed, Lord, not because of our own strength, but because of the power of Your cross that works in our lives. For this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.